0: Brooke and I were married at age 20. Uh, we were just kids, and I know I shared a personal story last week. I try not to do that often in sermons, but I again was thinking of another way to help us get into our text today because neither Brooke nor I was old enough to uh, rent a car when we got married <laughs> at the time. We either had to honeymoon somewhere where we could drive or we had to go someplace that had good public transportation. Uh, I know riding a bus is very romantic, but that's what we ended up doing. We ended up going to Park City, Utah, riding buses, walking wherever we went, a little small ski town in December. We were young when we got married and and were there in Utah, naive, not very street smart, had only been out of high school for a couple of years. Uh, One night when in uh, kind of the middle of our time there, we s- decided to splurge on a nice meal and went to this fancy restaurant right on the little Main Street in Park City. Dials I know, have been there a few times in Park City, and had a little second floor looking over this pretty little downtown area. And after we were seated, the waiter came by holding this bottle of Evian water and asked if we wanted any. And we're like, yeah, we'll, we'll save money. We'll just drink water. And so... He poured that water, and we we thought we were doing good. Well, we got our bill, and we realized that we had unknowingly bought like this $25, $25 bottle of water, and we're like, okay, I guess we'll skip a meal tomorrow. Um, well, we went back for our 10-year anniversary, and the the little it's just a small little sleepy town. It hadn't changed much at all. I mean, a lot of the same shops and restaurants were still there, the little bookstore that we liked, and... The fancy restaurant was still there, too, and we decided we would go back. Um, And so we laughed about the purchase of Evian water 10 years before, and we drank our free tap water instead that night. We had learned a little more by the age of 30 uh, than we knew at 20. Um, But the place hadn't changed. Uh, We had changed, though. Our lives were different, and and it was neat to go back Ten years later, to the same place and to think about what's happened in our lives, how much it had, had had transpired. Within that decade, we had graduated from college together and moved to California and I'd graduated from seminary and, and uh, we moved to Georgia and to Baraka. We had three kids and had bought a house. And, and so we, we had changed a lot. We had grown up a lot in those ten years. We even were able to rent a car this time, which was really nice. Um, but but you've had those experiences of, of going back to some place that you used to live that is important to you, a, a place that means a lot to you, a place of beginnings, uh, going back to where it all began. And I remember it being that kind of experience for us, visiting a hometown or a college campus or maybe the church where you trusted Christ as a young person. And, and when you go back, it reminds you of the way things were and it also is a way to, to kind of see what's, what's, how you've changed, what's changed, what's, what hasn't changed. And, and so it's very, it can be very helpful. Well, there's a version of that in our passage this morning. That, that The life with Jesus began for most of the disciples when they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. We see this in Luke 4. Chapter... 5 and Mark chapter 1, Jesus said to these fishermen, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and they followed Jesus. And the next three years of these men's lives, they could have never guessed what it would look like. They they, they could have never imagined what it would be like for them. The places they went, the things that they heard and saw and experienced, just overwhelming. Overwhelming. The highs and the, the lows, the successes and the failures, the setbacks and, 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 and the progress, the opposition and the excitement, all of the, all of that wrapped in there as they've, all that's transpired. And so just days before this episode in our text, their whole world came crashing in on them. As Jesus, this one that they had left everything to follow, was arrested, was, den- was betrayed, arrested, Denied by them, abandoned by them, and crucified and buried, but then, three days later, up from the grave, he rose, and they saw him again, and they touched him and they and they heard him speak peace to them. We saw this last time, and so then Jesus told them, "You go on ahead to Galilee, and you wait for me i'll I'll come, and I'll give you your next instructions there." And so they did. They went home. They went back to where it all began. And they waited for Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story here in John 21 today. Peter, John, five other disciples of Jesus are back where it all began on the sea of the shore of Galilee, on the, on the shore of the sea of Galilee. Maybe the same spot of beach because it seems to be that they knew where they would meet Jesus and where Jesus would meet them. And what in the world was going on in their minds as they came back there? As they wait, these, these fishermen, as we just read, they decide to go fishing. Something they've probably done very little of over the last three, three and a half years. So you can imagine the familiar sights and sounds and smells. To, to hear that water lapping against that little boat. And to smell that that water that has been, has filled their nostrils for years and years and years. And to... And to feel those nets—I mean, just—it must have been invigorating for these guys. And and, and this, maybe the same beach, same body of water, same boat. Perhaps maybe this was Peter's boat. Same net, same activity. But listen, they were not the same people. They were different. Everything had changed for them over the over this these years, particularly over the last few days. As we'll see in a moment, this encounter with Jesus, it bears striking resemblance to the, their first encounter with Him. As I mentioned three years earlier, and we see it in Luke chapter 5. The, in both scenes, they're, they're out on a boat fishing but not catching anything. And in both scenes, the Lord, though they don't know that, they, He tells them to throw their net in a different place. And when they do, they, 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 they haul in this massive, miraculous catch of fish. So they're very, they're very similar But there are also very striking differences because they're different now. We'll see Peter's response is very different. We'll look at that in a moment. But before, Jesus is inviting them to to join Him, to to go with Him, to leave with Him, initiating His relationship with them, the beginning of their training. And now, three years later, Jesus is restoring this relationship, reinstating them for service and is about to leave them. He's preparing them for His departure. As Jesus gets ready to launch these men into their life's work, something He's been preparing them for for the last three years, He brings them back to where it all began. And that's that Lombardi moment. Gentlemen, this is a football. This is who I am. This is why I came. That's what He's doing here. The ending of John, it, it is interesting, and I talked a little bit about this last week and but but this this last chapter of john has been challenged by some and critiqued by by some uh quote bible scholars the that because the climax of the book john's gospel it comes we saw last time with thomas's confession my lord and my god Everything has been leading to this. There's this, and then there's this fitting conclusion in the very last verses of John 20, the, where John lays out his purpose for writing his book, which just seems like the perfect place to put the quill down and close it and say it's finished. But then, but, but then we have another chapter. So what gives? What 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 does John have? Uh, why does John have a 21st chapter? It seems like it should have ended. Some critical scholars think it shouldn't. They don't believe John 21 should be. In our Bibles, not because there's any textual evidence to support that position, but just because they can't understand why John would tack on another chapter with with just another appearance and just another miracle. It seems kind of redundant and and uh, sort, of, sort of anticlimactic and unnecessary. But it's none of those things. John writes this epilogue, this last chapter under the Spirit's inspiration for a particular purpose. He, there are some loose ends that have to be tied up for, for John here. And that's what we see. If you, if you read through John's Gospel account in a very short period of time, you know, over in one sitting or just over a couple of days, I know we've been working through it for two years, so we might lose this feel. But if you read through it quickly, you would see an obvious loose end that needs to be tied up. And this loose end has a name. Peter, the loose end who is a loose cannon, uh, is, is Peter. And, and so what's, what's the situation with Peter? That's what we'd be asking if we had just read right through. The one who so dismally betrayed Jesus with that, that profanity-laced denial of Him just a few days before. We know Jesus looked at Peter in that courtyard after He adamantly denying Denied knowing any association with Jesus. And their eyes met, the scriptures say. And, you, and you can, can you imagine a deeper level of shame for a human being than what Peter experienced in that moment when Christ looked at him? Yes, we, we've seen in the last few weeks, Peter was one who rushed to the tomb after Mary Magdalene reported uh, to him and And yes, he was in the room when Jesus appeared with his disciples, but he was just one of the disciples there. So the question is, what's the status with Peter? How is the relationship now defined between Jesus and Peter? It doesn't look good. It hasn't looked good. And I think John understands this, and so under the Spirit's inspiration, he says, I'm not, I'm not going to let that just hang there. And so most of John 21, we'll see, it gives us information about Peter's restoration in, in terms of his relationship with the Lord and also the other disciples, but the focus seems to be more on Peter. So John 21 is more than, than uh, John simply saying, hey, let me throw one more uh, Jesus citing in for good measure. That's not what he's doing. It's not, I have a little bit of paper left, a little papyrus left, so let's, let me just give you one more miracle. Yeah, it's no resurrection, of course, but it's still pretty neat, this fish thing. That's not what he's doing. He's showing, he has design, he's showing Peter's restoration. After we finish this chapter, there will be no question for us as to whether or not Peter has been fully reinstated by the Lord. But without this chapter, we are wondering, Any doubts about whether he had sinned too grievously to still be entrusted with the task of shepherding Christ's flock will be put to rest. That's what we see here. But here's the thing I want you to see. Is that his restoration is inseparable from Christ's revelation of himself. And so what I mean is this chapter isn't about Peter getting his act together cleaning himself up dusting himself off and pulling himself up by the bootstraps and say all right i'm never doing that again that's not what it's about it's not about him proving himself to the lord it's it's not about jesus coming to peter and reassuring him that oh you have all the potential inside of you peter and and we'll just we'll we'll draw that out and it's there and it's okay that's not what this chapter is about that's not what his restoration and reinstatement's about no what we see is christ manifesting himself to Peter and the disciples, once again, further showing him how powerful and how gracious and how glorious he is. That's the key to, to their restoration. That's the key to sending them out as, as these restored, reinstated disciples of his. And I would just say that the lesson for us is that our growth, our usefulness to Jesus Christ is not ultimately rooted in the things that we do, but it's in who Christ is how He's revealed Himself to us. Our aim in life as Christians is not, is not to make ourselves useful to God, but it's to know Christ, as Paul says, and the power of His resurrection. Our growth as Christians is growth in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what makes us useful in, 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 in this disciple-making work. And it's that we know Christ, that we have close communion with Him. And so as Jesus comes and he meets Peter and these other disciples, this is, this is what his aim is here. He wants to show himself to them again so that they can be restored. And he wants to do the same thing to you today. He wants to show himself to us every time we come and gather. He wants to show himself to you so that you can be changed and you can be effective in this disciple-making word. And we see, I say this, I'm not just making this up, but I, I want you to see this. It, the the whole section here is, is bracketed, and we just read this, but it's bracketed by these two comments about revealing. After this, verse 1, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. And He revealed Himself in this way. And then it gives the account. And then in verse 14, the other closing bracket here, This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. So this revealing of Jesus is His unveiling, or some of your translations may say, manifested. He was his manifestation of Himself. This is more than simply an encounter or a sighting of Jesus. Like, okay, another appearance. It's more than that. It's more than simply He showed up and He appeared before them. No, no, through His... Through his presence, through these circumstances, through the miracle, uh, through the breakfast on the beach, the disciples are given this deeper understanding of Jesus, of their relationship with him, of his purpose in their lives. He's revealing himself to them for them to be restored, for their faith to be reinforced. They needed to see Jesus for who he really is. And that's what Christ is doing. What does Jesus manifest reveal about Himself here? This morning we're going to see the, the four, these four vital truths that Christ shows us about Himself. And they're, they're critical for the restoration of Peter and the commission of the disciples. And they're critical for us as we live sent lives, like we talked about last week, leveraging our lives for God's disciple-making mission. We need to have these truths deeply, deeply embedded in our hearts hearts the first thing that jesus reveals about himself is that he is sovereign lord he's sovereign lord now this should have been abundantly clear to peter and the other disciples after the resurrection uh, but a few days before that i remember this i know we think we look back and we have two thousand years to look back and we're familiar with these accounts but you just think of this the tumultuous days that the disciples have walked through here but just a few days before it looked like jesus had lost control it looked like his life was in the hands was helplessly in the hands of wicked men as they just made sport of him and did whatever they wanted with him and he seemed helpless to defend himself and and so they these disciples they needed this burn into their minds and into their hearts that jesus is lord and so this is this is part of what Christ does. This whole fishing episode is a setup by the Lord to manifest himself to them. It's not just that Jesus acts like Lord at times, it's not that he just appears lordly. No, he is Lord. It's who he is. And, and here he's orchestrating this whole scene to, to show this about himself. So we pick it up again in verse two. John mentions those who were with who, who were there in Galilee. Simon Peter. Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the, the one of John being the writer of this gospel account, and two other disciples, two others of his disciples were together, two unnamed disciples. Now we're told, verse 3, that Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Now there's a lot of people that try to figure out what this is about. If This is a good thing, a bad thing. Some something Peter is definitely wrong to go fishing, and there are sermons, many sermons that have been preached accordingly, and commentaries that are written along those lines. and And there may be something to that. I don't know, but, but like Peter says, they they would say that Peter's saying something. You know, I'm kind of over following Jesus. I'm just going to go back to the fisherman's life, and or at best, he's just kind of wasting time when he should be doing using his time in better ways than going out fishing. So there are some that see that happening here. Others use this episode to, to hold up Peter as this great glowing example of an, of an, of an example of hard work and, and not being idle. He's busy. He's earning a living. He's providing for his needs. And, and he's not squandering time, just twiddling his thumbs, waiting for Jesus to get back. And so some, hey, Peter's the, this hero. And I, I don't know. I don't, honestly, I don't think either of those are the point here. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that I could make a strong case either way. I would just say, remember, fishing was his profession. This is, this is all he knew before Christ. So now he's back home. He's waiting for Christ to show up and to summons him to his next task. And he says, I, I'm, I'm going fishing. And the rest of the fellows say, hey, we'll go with you. And so they get in a boat. They push off and they go out in the Sea of Galilee. They fish all night long. And they catch nothing. Verse three says. And then verse four: Just as day was breaking, so low light, just those beginnings of the day. Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. In part, probably because it's still pretty dark, and, and they're also about a hundred yards off the shore. Uh, verse eight says. And maybe there's, you know, that kind of mist that often happens in the mornings at the Lake and. Maybe Jesus is kind of disguising himself. He doesn't want them to know who he is, so he's just kind of keeping his head down. Uh, I, I know on on my day off, I've run into some of, several of you wearing a, a baseball cap and you know kind of grubby work clothes or something like that. I see you in Home Depot or something on uh, my days off, and I can walk up to you and start talking to you, and you look at me like I'm crazy because you have no idea who I am. And I it's very it's it comes in handy at times. I can be. Uh, I can be invisible to to some of you just by putting a hat on, um, so so maybe I, maybe it's, Jesus has done this by design. But anyway, they don't recognize him. Verse five: Jesus said to them, "Children, do you have any fish?" Now he's not talking down to them. It, you could translate this, "Fellas or boys, do you have any fish?" They don't they don't recognize his voice either as he asks this question. They so they answered him, "No." Six. He said to them, "Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some." So they cast it. Now you have to wonder at this point you know, what's going through their minds. This stranger on the shore that they don't know is hollering out to them. They've been fishing all night and trying throwing the net all over the place, not catching anything. And this guy, you know, tells them, "Hey, you might want to try the starboard side here, and, and, uh, and I think you'll, you'll catch some fish." So, we don't know their attitude toward the stranger's command, uh, but we just know that they did it. And and they get this huge catch, just like in the Luke episode. Verse 6 So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7 Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know now as John, the author of this gospel account, he said to Peter, It's the Lord! It is the Lord. I mean, this is deja vu all over again. They, so, so it dawns on John whose voice this is. There's there's recognition for John, and so so he says, "It's the Lord." That's that's him on the shore. That's that's that's, that's the Lord who's called out to us and has made this this quantity of fish appear in our nets. Now we've seen over and over in the gospel accounts and other parts of Scripture that. Peter he's he's the man of action. <laughs> he's the one that says, "Hey, I'm going fishing." He's the one that when the seas were storming and Jesus came walking to them, he gets out of the boat and walks to Jesus and of course he doubts, but he, he he's the man of action. He generally acts before John does. But the thing we other the other thing we see is John generally understands before Peter does. And we you know I I was just thinking, thank God that he gives Men and women of action and men and women of understanding and vision in the church. I think there's a compliment there. And we should recognize that God has gifted us differently and he's enabled us differently. Because what you see as you go on in the book of Acts, Peter and John are together all the time. And they're preaching and teaching and ministering together. Very different men, complimenting gifts and personalities. Alright, that's a rabbit trail. Verse 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. What a great picture. I think the scene from Forrest Gump coming in is, he's coming in on the shrimping boat, and and uh, and he sees Lieutenant Dan on the dock there in the harbor, and that's Lieutenant Dan, and then he just takes off in the water, the boat's still moving, and crashes. Uh, this is Peter's reflex to get to Jesus as quick as he possibly can. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I'm going. Now, as I read that, maybe to you. I mean, this is how I think, as I've been thinking about this. Is there anything strange to you about verse 7? <laughs> when, 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 when I've known people, and when I've done this, suddenly decide to, that I need to jump in the water, maybe to rescue somebody, or some kind of emergency... The first thing I do is shed clothing, not put stuff on. <laughs> and, but that's what that's what Peter does. The text says Peter was stripped for work. The the word there is gumnos in Greek. It it means he was nude or naked. Now, it couldn't mean that he was in his skivvies. Probably was the case in the loincloth or something like that. But he was unencumbered with the, that large robe so he could work the nets. And, and, and so he's he's down there. But in either case, Peter's not completely dressed when he's fishing. But when he decides to go to Jesus, he covers himself, and then he jumps in the water. It's not to keep himself warm. It's not not because it's going to help him swim by any means. It's not because if he doesn't take it with him, it's not going to get there because the guys can bring it in the boat. He covers himself. Now, this word, and there are other words, uh, synonyms, for naked. They're they're most often used in the context in, in, in scriptural context and, in in to deal with sin and shame. It was the first experience that Adam and Eve had in the garden when they sinned. They were naked and ashamed. Now Jesus, the Son of God, is on the shore, the one that Peter has denied, betrayed And he sees Jesus and he covers himself with what he has. And he dives into the water to go to him. Now as I mentioned earlier, um, when you compare this account to Luke chapter 5, this is where we really see the differences emerge. Peter's responses are radically different. Three years earlier when when Jesus told them where the fish were and the nets were filled with fish and the boat starts sinking because of the quantity of fish. Now, again, remember, Peter was a businessman, and his business was selling fish. <laughs> and so he's just had the greatest catch of his life. I'm thinking back in Luke 5 now. And and it's all because of this stranger who, like here, has hollered to him from the shore and told him where to cast his nets. Now, what would you and I do in that situation if our if we're in the fishing business? I can tell you what I'd do. I'd say, look, Jesus, let's make a deal here. <laughs> I, I, you sign this contract right here, you don't have to work long hours. You don't have to work every day. You come down here one day a week and you do that little thing you just did and you can have 50% of the cut and we'll make a killing. That's that's probably how I would think. That's not what Peter does. It's not what Peter did. Luke 5. Luke 5, when Peter saw that and saw what Jesus did right in front of his eyes, he had he had... A strange response if you think about it, as this businessman, this fisherman, he looked at Jesus and he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Luke five eight. That's the normal response of people when they recognize Jesus for who he is. That's the that's the universal response of the creature who beholds the glory of the Creator. When Peter realizes the the one with whom he's dealing, he's just overwhelmed with guilt. And so all he wants more than anything else is to, to remove himself from that guilt. And so he wants to put distance between himself and this Holy One, this Lord that he's just encountered for the first time. And so he says, Jesus, please leave. I can't stand it. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man. Our basic nature is to put as much space between Christ and ourselves and our sin as we possibly can. And that's how Peter reacts early on in the ministry of Jesus. That's not what he does this time. This time when he has so much more to be ashamed of, so much more to be embarrassed by, instead of trying to put distance between himself and the Savior, he dives into the water and swims as fast as he possibly can to get to Jesus. (laughs) He can't wait to get to the seashore where Jesus is. He's not about to wait on the boat to row to shore, and it's being slowed down because of this net, dragging all these fish that they can't get the net in the boat, so he jumps in the water immediately and swims. Listen, this is what I want you to see here in these first seven verses. Is This miracle, this scene is, is pressing home this a powerful reality for Peter and the disciples and for us. He's not simply better than most at making bad situations better. That's not who Jesus is. He's Lord. He makes something out of nothing. He, he's driving this home to them and to us. You can't do it. You can't, you can't, you can't, I can. This is what he wants his disciples to really get. Who he is, what he's able to do. These fishermen, they can't do the very thing they're supposed to be really good at. They're professional fishermen. They can't catch fish though without Jesus' involvement. One commentator said in the, in the Gospels, the disciples never catch fish without Jesus' help so Jesus, he's pressing home what he taught them in the upper room you remember this i'm the vine you are the branches abide in me for apart from me you can do what nothing nothing but the converse is also true with me nothing is impossible because He's sovereign Lord, there's, there's no area of life that's outside the, the realm of Christ's Lordship. And what an encouragement, what comfort, what fear, what hope this gives to us. And as we, as we go out on mission for Christ, as those that have been sent into this world, as the Father sent Jesus, so we have been sent by Christ into this world to make disciples of all nations. And as we encounter oppositions and we suffer for His namesake, we have this assurance that we go out and we need to know this, that Jesus Christ, You are Lord. You are Lord of all. And that's, that's what the disciples, that's what Peter needed to really get. It wasn't, again, to come in touch with himself. It wasn't to see how deep down he was really a good guy. It was just, just who just made a mistake. no. He needed to see who Christ is, to be changed by Him. That's what we need. Second, He's sovereign Lord. Jesus is also loving servant. Loving servant. They're going to come quicker, don't worry. Verse 8, 8 to 12. But He's just displayed His unrivaled, unstoppable, unlimited, sovereign authority as Lord of all. And now he displays his willingness to stoop low and serve. And he becomes the camp cook and serves these guys breakfast. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. Now I'm thinking, uh, this is my little sarcastic mind. Yeah, we got it, Peter. You just go on. We'll get the boat and the fish. You just go on. We got this. You get your stuff. We'll get everything else. This is hell. Yeah, anyway. But it doesn't say that they complained, but I can imagine that they might have thought that. Um, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. What a scene. This is the scene that speaks to us. The one through whom the world was made. The one who is the eternal, I am. The, the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The one who conquered sin and death and rose again. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is there and he's made breakfast for these men who failed him. There's just charcoal fire. Now again, when you read a detail like that, you've you got to ask, why, is, why does John say that? What is he he Why does he mention the fire? What's the significance of that? There may be none. Maybe he's just describing the scene. But the, interestingly, the, there's only two times in, in John's gospel account when a fire like this is mentioned. And the same word is used in that context of Peter's denial, where Peter stood and warned himself by the fire with the servants on that cold, dark night as Jesus was being beaten. And, 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 and Peter was with profanity denying that he knew any knew Jesus or had any association with Him at all. So, this is the only other occasion that's words used. That fire in in that cold dark of night as Jesus was being delivered over to death, this fire is burning on the start of a new day as Jesus has risen from the dead and He's there and He's serving them. He's tended the fire so He can serve breakfast to His followers. It's Jesus who washed their feet in the upper room it's Jesus who was abandoned by them in his darkest hour. It's Jesus who absorbed God's wrath for their sins and who rose from the dead. He's still serving them. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And we'll see in verse 11, we'll come back to this in a moment. Peter when grabs the net full of fish and takes it up there. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples stared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So we, we see this great paradox and glory of the gospel. They know it's the Lord, and yet He's this loving servant. The one who is Lord of the universe, enters our world not to be served, but to serve. Matthew 20 tells us. This is, the, this is not just the key to understanding the majesty of Jesus. This is key to appreciating the depth of our need. That, that, that we are more needy than we realize or would like to admit, brothers and sisters. We think we're okay on our own. We, we tend to think that we're kind of under this delusion that we're somewhat self-reliant and self-sufficient. And, and we, can, we can take care of ourselves. We feel like we're the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls. We, we struggle to concede how needy and dependent we really, truly are. But we are needy. We are needy by design. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus is the, though the perfect need meter. He is the loving servant. And so, so one of the, as, as we see our neediness, we see Jesus is the one who is this loving servant who meets all, all of our needs. Paul told the Philippians, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus loves to meet our needs in christ and this is truth again that needs to be firmly embedded in the apostles minds and in our minds as we go out on this mission third what do we learn of jesus here he is extravagant provider He is extravagant provider Verse eleven. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish. So since he, since the other guys rode the boat to shore, he says, "All right, I'll go retrieve the net by myself." Um, and there's 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So you have big fish, lots of them. And John, John it's like John wants us to just kind of feast our eyes on this this haul of fish. He's Very descriptive in this to to think about the greatness of this miracle and its implications. He he wants the readers to see this and and now he interesting. He gives this exact number one hundred and fifty three fish. Is there any significance to that number? Uh, can, Can why why did he just say the net was full? Now there have been there are some giants in church history who have offered what I think are some rather bizarre. Uh, reasons for this number 153 and interpretations of this Uh, jerome argued that there were uh, 153 total species of fish in the world and so this is one of every kind of fish and he said well this represents every nation and the gospel going out every tribe tongue and nation and and the nets of god's rescue never breaks it's strong enough to to to, for the catch and uh, okay I don't don't think that's the point. There are more than 153 species of fish we now know. Um, Others have tried other numerical explanations. 100 represents the Gentiles. 50 represents the Jews. Three, the Trinity. And so trying to come up with some number or or eschatological interpretations. There There are some that said, no, they're just simply trying to divide the fish. And so they had to count so they could... Could make sure everybody got the same number. The challenge with that is it's not indivisible by seven. And so somebody got shorted to fish. Um, others say, that, you know, the reason is just, it's just this record-breaking catch. And and they just wanted to see how many fish they caught for, for the books. I mean, they, these guys are fishermen. Fishermen count fish, don't they, Mr. Olden? <laughs> you don't ever have a big catch and say, you know, I don't know how many I caught today. You know exactly how many you caught today and how much they weighed. And, and... I'm inclined to think that's probably why it's there. I think, I think the, the, it is, whatever the case, what this shows is this is not mere subsistence provision. This is proof that Jesus is able to do, Paul tells Ephesians, exceedingly far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He is, he is an extravagant provider. And the extravagance of, of this miracle, it's an echo of Jesus' great promise in this gospel account of John. I, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, not just a little bit, but abundant, full, vibrant life. He underscores this same truth in his first letter that the Apostle John writes. He says, See, behold, get this, don't miss this. What manner, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The love of God towards his people is a love through the Son that knows no limits. God is the Christ is an extravagant provider and giver we think god only blesses us and kind of half measures and just reluctantly doles it out a little bit just to kind of get us by that is not who our lord is he is not stingy like we think he is that that that, that, so what does that mean for us well just you take it into the realm of prayer let's not be guilty of praying small prayers to the stingy god of our own imagination. When he calls us to pray big prayers according to the God of Scripture. Philip Brooks said this about this kind of praying. He said, Pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God, in answering it, will not wish you had made it larger. Pray not for crutches, but for wings. And so. As you pray for yourself and for your family and for this church and for, the, for our mission outreach in this community and around the globe, pray that God would do through us what is humanly inexplicable. We can be like the disciples. who We, 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 we want to pray for 200 denarii that will just kind of barely meet the needs of, of the moment. And Jesus says, no, pray for loaves and fishes that are more than you ever eat this is what he is willing to provide so that he gets all the glory so pray pray large prayer for the conversion of many souls don't give up praying for the lost in your family and for this for your neighbors and for 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 this community and for the nations pray for the revival of his church pray for Marriages that, humanly speaking, seem hopeless. Pray that Christ would redeem them and restore them. He is able. Pray for Christians who are just have drank the poison of the world and are just seeped in worldliness and living for themselves. Pray that they would repent and be radically changed. Just pray large prayers. Jesus is not stingy. He is an extravagant provider. Fourth and finally. Jesus' intimate friend verse thirteen Jesus came and took bread, took the bread, and he gave it to them, so with the fish you know, I mean just the the meal itself is a is a lesson for the disciples and for us here that the meal is' it's more than just sharing food and having a meal this is This is an act of fellowship with God here is Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, dining with these men on on this beach, confirming the fellowship of the the past, and despite their desertion, that that He's assuring them that there is this intimate friendship that goes on into the future. This little meal, Jesus is strengthening His bond with these disciples and preparing them for the work that lies ahead. And so... Just say, true discipleship, true effectiveness and service and mission, it it rests upon the same point, our communion with Christ. Oh, as the hymn writer says, oh, for a closer walk with God. That should be our prayer. God, help me walk closely with you. Help me to know you, to love you more. That ought to be our constant prayer. We saw this last week. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. He doesn't tell Peter and the other disciples, as the Father sent me, I was planning on sending you, but because of your failures, I'll have to to do something else. Peter, the other disciples, they they needed restoration. They needed to be reinstated. And the key to that was that they needed a deeper understanding of who Christ is. Not, not, it doesn't say, he's not, the encouragement is not to look horizontally to see how I stack up next to other brothers and sisters. Well, I'm better than them. Okay, I'm not quite where, the, where he's at, but you know, I, can, I think I could get there. It's not looking inside what kind of reserves of, of, of strength I can muster up in myself. No, it's looking to Christ. So you, need, I need, you, need, you need me manifested to you. You need to see Jesus as He's revealed Himself in power and grace and glory. I just say to you, do you need to be restored? Has your life kind of drifted off course, off the rails? Rather than loving Christ and living for His mission, are you loving the world and living for yourself? Do you wonder if you've been set aside by Jesus and you can never be effective in His service again because of your sin or because of wandering and straying? The answer in your hope, is not in, Again, it's not in looking in yourself. It's not in looking at others. It's, you need to see Jesus. Seeing Him, this is right in line with John's purpose. You need to believe in Him more and then experience more of His abundant life. That's John's burden in writing. it has that's been my burden as I've been praying for myself and for this church over the last two years working through this account. So we need to beg the Lord. Lord, revive revive my heart. Oh, revive me, Lord. To give, to, give a, to, to give us a clearer vision to see like what John saw. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And then to jump off the boat and swim after Him. Not look back. That's what Christ would want of us. We've got we to go back to where it all began. Revelation 2. Turn there with me. Revelation 2. We we see this appeal. Revelation 2. The the ascended Jesus is writing letters to to different churches, and he's writing through the Apostle John again, and one of the first letter that goes out is to the church at Ephesus, and he's urging their restoration. He's exhorting them to, to go back to where it all began. They had many things going for them. They were busy. They were a busy church. They were were active. They were orthodox. They were were discerning. They weren't wimps. They, They could stand up under suffering and persecution, but they were missing the point. Verse four, Jesus says to them, You have abandoned the love you had at first. You no longer love me the way that you did when you first came to me. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Remember the way things were. Remember when you had a deep, warm love for me. And repent. Change your, change your mind about me. Align your thoughts about me with how I've manifested myself to you. And then live accordingly. For he says, and do the works that you did at first. Do those first works. When your love for me was strong, do those things. say is, is that speak to where maybe some of you are today. You have you, you, you're you here you're present trying to be a good parent trying to be a good son or daughter going through the motions well trying to be moral there's there's an absence, there's an abscess in your heart of love for Christ. You had it but it's it's gone it's not it's not a, Christ isn't your first love anymore there are other loves that have crept in would you repent would you turn would you change your mind about who Christ is and then act in accordance with that be restored brother and sister Christ offers that this is he this is an invitation to you you can know that once again James four eight expresses this thought very well. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. As you draw near to Him today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we, we beg You still for eyes to see You. Um, we, we say the name of Jesus. We sing about the name of Jesus. We're going to sing about it now. We're going to sing of who You are and and even as maybe words that were lost in the sermon would be, would be heard and, and embedded in our hearts as we sing to one another now and to you, we would, we would better understand who you are, believe you more deeply, and live more of the life that you've called us to, Lord. Father, if, we've, if there's just this profound apathy in our hearts towards you, God, we we beg for your mercy that you would grant to us repentance, that we could, we could do again the works that we once do. Those those works that demonstrated that you were our first love. Would you would you work that in us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.